0: Yesterday, Spirit Rock was graced with a group of the new teacher trainees who came here for lunch and were doing some of their uh, training down in the community hall, the the hall down the lower parking lot. And it was my first meeting with this new group. They're just starting their training as new teachers. And there's 23 of them, and they range from the ages of 28 to uh, mid-fifties. So it was very exciting to be with them, and I had the opportunity to be uh, part of their ritual where they were uh, taking the kind of the initiation to take the light of the Dharma forward. And it was very beautiful, um, each one of them speaking about the personal qualities that they want to bring forth as they uh, teach the Dharma in the world, bringing the lamp, the light of the Dharma so it was very beautiful. And part of that ritual, um, Jack uh, our one of our teachers here, was leading this ritual. And he. there were a number of us, there was also a number of the staff present to uh, witness this uh, initiation. And as part of the ritual, he asked all of us to reflect on the first time that we woke up to the dharma, just to take a, a few minutes and to just think about that moment, that, in, that situation where the Dharma first appeared in our lives. And you may even want to do that yourselves just for a, a moment or two. And just reflect on just the moment or that situation where you were awakened to the, these teachings, these beautiful and precious teachings. For myself, as I did that, it gave me the opportunity just for a little bit to reflect on the difference between that moment and today, what's happened in between that moment and now. The first moment for me was, um, I think I was about 26 years old, and I was reading Ram Dass's book, Be, Be Here Now, and that was it. The light went on. And there was a whole kind of culture that was associated with that book back in the mid-70s that was very enlightening for many of us. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the, the journey for me into these beautiful teachings. I remembered at that time being very lost, very confused. This is my mid-20s and not having any sense of meaning or direction in my life, not really knowing what life was about. And as that teaching was set in motion, which brought me to the Buddha Dharma and brought me to my practice, uh, my meditation practice, things started to become more clear. Things started to awaken for me. This is really what happens for us as we enter the path, the spiritual path, our spiritual journey in these teachings. This is a quote from Stephen Batchelor, one of our friends and colleagues. He said, samsara, samsara is the kind of the feeling of entrapment that we have when we're caught in suffering in this world. That's the word, the Pali word for it. Samsara is like being on a wheel in a hamster cage. There is a sense of never having moved on. We keep finding ourselves back at square one, a life of frustration. And that, that image of the hamster wheel is used a lot of this sense of just going round and round and round and not really having a sense that we're going anywhere and we can feel stuck in that and frustrated by that. Another quote that I like a lot, Um, is the definition of insanity, which we may be able to relate to. Insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. (laughs) And in a way, (laughs) it kind of points to our own mind you know the insanity within our own mind where we get caught in these habits and we do the same thing over and over and over again and this is really the treadmill of samsara or that where we 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 get caught in this wheel of suffering in the in the buddhist teachings this suffering is called dukkha and this is what i want to explore a little bit tonight is this dukkha and i find that the word itself is actually quite a moving word, when you, as you deepen into the significance of what it really means, instead of using the word suffering, we just use dukkha, just feeling dukkha, you know, and it just has a, it has a impact on the mind, on the consciousness, on the being, when we really understand that word, it's like nothing else can really say it the way that word dukkha, This is where we find ourselves a lot of the time. And the interesting thing is that the Buddha was only interested in one thing, in teaching one thing, and was concerned about one thing. And that was dukkha and the end of dukkha, or suffering and the end of suffering. All of the teachings, all of the practices point to ending this suffering in our lives. And this was all, these teachings were distilled into the four noble truths. And many of you are familiar with this map or this this, uh, uh, instruction of the four noble truths because everything that we need to know, we need to understand, is contained in that teaching. The the four noble truths, um, I'll tell you and also remind some of you, the first noble truth is that there is suffering in this life. There is dukkha in this life. And I remember that the the first time I actually heard that, it had a very strong impact on me because up until then I thought all of my pain and all of my suffering was my fault. And when I heard that that was actually the first noble truth, that that's that's part of being in a human body, in the human condition, that there is pain and suffering, a whole load dropped off, off of me. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and how we can really understand that, that there is suffering in this life. The second one is that there is a cause for this suffering. There is a cause for this dukkha. And this was really the brilliancy of the Buddha because he actually showed us and directed us what to look for so that we can bring an end to the pain and suffering in our life. And the third noble truth is that there is an end to the cause of this suffering. There is an end to this dukkha. This is freedom. This is liberation. And that there is a path to the end of the suffering is the fourth noble truth, the eightfold noble path, the path that we're practicing here, that we talk about, that we direct people in. The cause of suffering, many of you know, I'm not going to go into it too much tonight. Well, actually, I am, to tell you the truth, but just from a little different angle than from my usu- where I usually go in at it. But the cause, I guess, actually, I'm going to talk a lot about it now that I realize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about it from such a different angle that it's like, oh, yeah. The cause of suffering is not holding on. The cause, the ca- the cause of suffering is holding on, and the end of the suffering is the letting go, not holding on. So the cause of suffering is the clinging, is the attachment, is the holding. And the end of the dukkha, the end of the suffering, is the letting go. And this is what I want to bring some uh, insight into, some exploration into, so we can understand that more for our time here, for our practice here. How can we actually apply these teachings right here and now? Some years ago, I was uh, in India, and I've spent many winters in India. And this particular time I was there, I was in this uh, town called Sarnath. And Sarnath is the place where, in North India where the Buddha first gave his first sermon, his, uh, the Wheel of the Dhamma, and uh, this, the Four Noble Truths, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And I was walking around the stupa with a friend, the place that was actually marked where the Buddha gave this teaching. And I was walking around, and I was just feeling such intense gratitude at that time for the power that these teachings have had in my life. And, while, and I was talking with my friend. We were talking about the power of the Four Noble Truths. And what I realized in that moment as I was walking and feeling and in that place was that every moment is a rev- can be a revelation of the Four Noble Truths. That every moment we can wake up and practice the potential of what's contained in those Four Noble Truths. The first being that there, every moment there is the potential for Dukkha to arise because we never know from one moment to the next what's going to happen. And so there's this kind of this sense of kind of readiness or openness or wisdom, kind of quality of wisdom that we can bring to each moment, not not defending or protecting or fighting off the potential for some painful situation to arise, but that's having that quality of openness with the wisdom to know that anything could happen, anything could change at any moment, that there is dukkha in this life, no matter what we do there's dukkha and then the second that when the conditions of dukkha do arise that through my understanding and through my wisdom I can actually bring some uh, clarity to how to relate to that dukkha not to hold on not to cling not to fight not to attach onto the situation being different than it is in that moment which just causes more dukkha and then the third being that when I do that I can be free I can let go of that dukkha, I'll be free of it in that moment if I'm not holding on. And then the fourth is the very practice itself of knowing this and paying attention and applying the insights of this wisdom. And that every moment, because every moment there are conditions present for us, and we are challenged every moment, how are we relating to what's here right now? Are we wanting something else to be happening? Are we aversive to what is happening? Are we uh, are we fighting? Are we struggling? Are we manipulating? Every moment we have an opportunity for freedom to let go and to be present with what is. And it was very powerful for me in that moment to realize that the four noble truths aren't just—it's just not some kind of abstract teaching out there. But as we embody. And as we really bring the Dharma into the center of our lives, we have this precious jewel that is influencing us, that is kind of speaking to us every moment, if we are open, if we are receptive to these teachings and the power of these teachings. The wisdom that we begin to understand is this... If I hold on a lot, I suffer a lot. If I hold on a little, I suffer a little. If I don't hold on at all, there's no suffering at all. And that's what we need to understand. When we let go, there's no suffering at all. We're free in that moment. So this whole area of dukkha, which one reason I'm speaking about it tonight is because my sense is that it's somewhat present in the room. Because when we sit on retreat, particularly in the first couple of days, we experience a lot of this kind of unsatisfactoriness in our minds and our bodies and our experiences. And so it's so important to, again, talk about, James did a beautiful job last night, again, Talking about what to do when certain conditions arise in the mind. And as we're going deeper into that a little bit more tonight, as our minds are a little bit more quiet, perhaps, than yesterday, uh, a little bodies a little bit more settled, and we can begin to explore this a little bit more fully. The first noble truth actually acknowledges two aspects of dukkha or two aspects of suffering. One is an aspect of dukkha that we can't actually change, that we actually don't have so much influence over, but it's still dukkha. And then there's another aspect that we can change, that we have a lot of influence over, and this is where our practice comes in. The first kind of dukkha that we can't change is the suffering that arises from being in a human body. This is called dukkha (laughs) dukkha. I love that. Pain in the body, dukkha dukkha. Not just (laughs) dukkha. This is really dukkha, dukkha dukkha. In the teachings, it says that birth is dukkha. Even that first coming into a human body, the experience is dukkha. As we get older and as we begin to age, we, become, we get sick, the body starts to decay, we start to move towards death, death itself. The whole birth and dying de- death process of the human body, in other words, the human condition that we find ourselves in, this is dukkha. There really isn't two. We can't really get out of that too much because to have a body, I mean, what was your, what's been your experience in the last couple of days with your body? Just reflect on that for a moment. Some people can have a body so free of pain, and then they come and they sit for 45 minutes, and you'll get up and walk for 45 minutes, come back and sit, and it's like, oh, this pain and that pain, this tension and that tension. It's all there. We call that sitting pain. Actually, the pain that arises when we actually sit down, we get up and it goes away. What's that? You know, what's that about? As we become more sensitive to our body, we start to feel and all the different sensations and movements in the body. It gets uncomfortable. It's painful. It's dukkha. Call well, it dukkha. We really can't change this. We want to change it, don't you? You want to change it, and you want to find all different kinds of ways to try to get out of this, the pain and the discomfort. But ultimately, we find some of it we just can't do anything about. But that wanting just adds more struggle and more conflict and more tension and more anxiety. And so we are instructed to see if we can actually watch the mind around that to see if we can just feel and be with our body the way it is with care and kindness and attention. And this helps a lot. It may not get rid of the pain in the body, but it certainly does. We're not adding any more on top of it. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment, what we add on top of our experience. The second kind of dukkha that we can't change is called sankara dukkha. And this kind of dukkha is the oppressive nature of of all formations of existence that are continually arising and passing and arising and passing, impacting consciousness moment to moment through the five senses and our mind, thoughts coming and going, constantly having some kind of stimulating impression on the mind and the body. And at times, as we become more sensitive, this can be really exhausting as we start to feel it, like we can't get out of that, except in deep sleep we have some relief from it, but as soon as we wake up, then all these, the mind starts up, and then the body, and then the sensations, and then all the different things that we get involved in, this constant barrage of conditions, moment after moment. And it's tiring, it's exhausting on the human body, unless we know how to be with it, unless we know how to work with it. Where I really experienced this a lot was during my time in India, And for those of you who have been in India, you can actually understand what I'm talking about. Because as soon as you walk off the plane and just start to walk out of the airport, every time, I haven't been anywhere where this hasn't been my experience, there's about 200 people kind of right up against the glass, you know, waiting for people to come out. And they're, you know, making... It's like it could be 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning. It's just like you walk into a barrage of excitement and teeming activity, and it doesn't stop. It's just a bombardment of the senses of the sights and tastes and smells, and, and um, uh, every aspect is just impacting. And it is difficult. It's really difficult to know how to be with all that, In an equanimous way, in a balanced way. I'm not sure that there is, because it's so intense a lot of the time. And so that's where I really experience this um, sankara dukkha, this, because here, you know, in the West, things can, you know, we have a way of controlling our experience a lot more, so it can be a little bit more uh, tranquil or, or settled at times. But in most other cultures, that's not the case. It's, oh, oh, this aliveness and intensity. So those are the two kinds of dukkha that we can't change. But the Buddha didn't stop here. Otherwise, we would just have to get used to this. And the truth is that there is the possibility of real transformation so that we don't have to feel and experience dukkha in the same way without this realization, without this insight into the way things are. We can transform our suffering. So the third kind of dukkha, or the second aspect that the Buddha pointed to, was the dukkha that we unnecessarily bring to our experience. This is called the Parinama dukkha. And this is the dukkha that arises, that's caused from the grasping On to our experience that is always changing. It's a psychological pain that arises from the confusion about the way things are. Because the way things are is things are always changing. All conditions are arising and passing, coming and going, and nothing stays for very long. Nothing lasts for very long. But the habit of the mind is to want to hold on to the idea of how we want things to be or how we don't want things to be. And this is a confusion. It's not seeing clearly. It's not seeing into the nature of things, into the impermanent nature that there Everything is in flux. Everything is in transition. And we don't have to look very far to see the truth of this. How many times and in how many different ways has your mind state changed today? How many different locations have you been in mentally? Sometimes dull, sometimes clear... Sometimes agitated, sometimes calm. Just this constant flux of changing mind states. Maybe even your mind state's a little different now than it was when you were walking outside in the cool air during the break. You know, just to know how many changes occur. How many times has your body changed today? Just the quality of your body or the pains or the sensations in your body... You know, from, you know, hunger or, or thirst or heaviness from tiredness or heat or coolness or all the changes in the body. The weather, how the weather changes a lot here, you know, from being quite cool in the morning to very warm in the afternoon to cool again. Morning and night, light and dark. And what about that great lunch you had today? Where's that? What happened to that experience? It was a good lunch. It really was a good lunch. (laughs) But where is it now? As one of my teachers said, it's back there with Alexander the Great. And I really like that, or like reflecting on that, because it's not like it was just like, Four or five hours ago, it is gone, <laughs> never to be retrieved again. It is history, <laughs> just like the last two minutes or the last ten minutes. It's gone. All there is 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 the conditions that are present right now. And these are changing instantly as the words tumble out of my mouth and your response. Nothing stays the same when we really look more closely upon direct evidence of the way things are. You see, without reflecting deeply on impermanence, on the nature of existence, we spend our life chasing after more experiences. We think experiences are what it's all about collecting more and more experiences, usually pleasurable experiences. But the difficulty is that they, when we look, they do not bring us any lasting fulfillment. Why? Because they're unstable, they're unreliable, they're insubstantial, there's nothing there. The conditions come together for a moment or two and then they fall apart. There's nothing there. nothing we can ultimately grab onto, insubstantial. And yet we have the the tendency of the human mind, of the human condition, is to keep running after, seeking after these conditions that we think are going to bring this happiness or this fulfillment. But we are left empty-handed, no matter how great the fantasy, and maybe you've had a few fantasies, you know, thinking what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there, what you'd like to happen. But where is it? Where is the reality of that right now? This is from an email that was sent to me uh, by one of my friends in Canada. It was around Christmas time. Um, and it goes like this So, the latest from my eight year old grandson, Seth. After all the build-up and the anticipation, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling and he said, "It's all the presents. They take you up and then they drop you." <laughs> 8 years old. She said he really understood that he had been caught and that it couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there's still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. And we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short term pleasure, and not nearly as much of that as promised. Beautiful grandmother teaching her grandson. And then she says, it took me until the age of 50 to even begin to understand that. <laughs> so this is how it is. Where is it now? You no, know, I keep getting this sense of this sort of illusory nature. You know, what's here now? And we can really see this in our meditation. You know, how we want certain experiences to be happening, don't we? You know, we, it's just the way we're programmed somehow. You know, it's like we'd rather have this than this. You know, and then we find that whole toppling forward that James was talking about, that wanting, grasping after. It's so hard then, it's so hard sometimes to just settle into what is, present moment experience just as it is. And yet as we have more understanding of the impermanent nature of reality, we can settle in knowing that this too will pass. This too will pass, so why make anything out of it? Why build anything up? Why make meaning out of our experience that's happening? Because it's, it's not going to last that long and yet we want to patch up this whole sense of who we are around this, around our experiences, our meditation experiences in this case. But we do this with everything. You know? So one of the insights that we can have through the meditation practice, through the clear seeing, the direct looking, is this sense of there's nothing really we can hold on to ultimately because everything is changing. This was really a very important teaching that the Buddha gave. And I want to read to you this story called the Parable of the Must the Parable of the Mustard Seed. Because I think it's really a very powerful story in how the Buddha taught also in terms of this uh, importance of the understanding of impermanence. Gotami was her family name, but because she tired easily, she was called Kisa Gotami or Frail Gotami. She was born in a poverty-stricken house, and when she married, she went to the house of her husband's family to live. There, because she was the daughter of a poverty-stricken house, they treated her with contempt. After time, she gave birth to a son, and then they accorded her with respect. And this is actually what happens in Indian families. But when that boy of hers was old enough to play and run hither and about, he was stricken with illness and died. Ailing in grief, she carried the body of her dead child everywhere, asking for help, for medicine, to bring him back to life. But, of course, no one could help her. Wherever people encountered her, they said, where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? So saying, they clapped their hands and sent her away. A certain wise man saw her and thought, this woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But no one else is likely to know of a medicine for her except the Buddha. Said he, woman, as for medicine for your son, the foremost individual in the world of men and the worlds of gods, the Buddha resides at a neighboring monastery. Go to him and ask. The man speaks the truth, thought she, and she went on her way. Taking her son on her hip, she took her stand in the outer circle of the congregation around the seated Buddha and said, O oh, exalted one, please give me medicine for my son and bring him back to life. The Buddha replied, You did well, Gotami, in coming hither for medicine. I'll give you some. But first you must do something for me. You must go to the village and get me a handful of mustard seed, which was the most common Indian spice. And from this I will fashion a medicine for your child. There is one more thing, however, the Buddha said. The mustard seed must come from a home where no one has died, where no one has lost a child or a parent, a spouse or a friend. Kisa Gotami ran into the village and ran into the first house begging for mustard seed. Please, please, may I have some grains of mustard seed? And the people seeing her grief responded immediately. But then she asked, has anyone in this home died? Has a mother or a daughter or a father or a son? What you say, Gotami, here it is impossible to count all the dead. "'Well, then I'll not take it.' "'And she ran away and ran to the next house. "'Again they offered her mustard seed, "'and again she asked, "'Has anyone here died? "'And found out that the younger daughter had died, "'or at the next house it was the maiden aunt. "'And so it went house to house after house in this village. "'There was no household she could find "'which had not known death. "'Finally she understood, "'In the entire city this must be the way.' The Buddha, full of compassion for the welfare of mankind, must have seen. Overcome with emotion, she carried the body of her dead son back to the Buddha. There her son was buried with all proper rights. As her son was cast away in the burning ground, she uttered these words. No village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house compares to this. Of all the world and of all the worlds of God, this is the only law that all things are impermanent, that all things will pass away. She then bowed to the Buddha and asked him for teachings that would bring her wisdom and refuge in this realm of birth and death. And she herself took these teachings deeply into her heart and became a great yogi and a wise woman. As all these wonderful stories end but it doesn't say she became enlightened. That's really the way most of these stories end. So a very, very powerful teaching, this teaching of impermanence, as we let it go deeply into our being, into our heart. Suzuki Roshi, a great Zen master, said, When we realize the everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it, We find ourselves in nirvana. We find ourselves in nirvana. Where else can we be? Because we're not grasping. We're not holding on. And when we're not holding on, we come to the end of this dukkha. We come to the end of the suffering. And this is nirvana. This is what nirvana is. So we may have glimpses of this. We may have tastes of this. We may have momentary experiences of this freedom. And this is the perfume of this nirvana that is possible in a very, very profound way for us when we are not holding on, when we're not trying to control and manipulate the laws of this nature, the laws of this existence, and the way things are. And so what's possible in this practice is we can see very deeply. It's not that we have to believe the teachings of the Buddha, but the Buddha's teachings actually point us back to our own minds and say, look at your own mind and see if this is actually true. Look for yourself. Don't believe what I say. In fact, it's ehipasiko. Look to, to your own mind. Be a lamp unto yourself and see whether this teaching is true or not. Because this is where, as we take this in, this is where there's the possibility of very deep happiness and deep contentment, deep peace, deep freedom in our life. One of the fundamental problems is that we view ourselves as solid and unchanging we want ourselves and our minds and our experiences, we want to manipulate ourselves in such a way that we get to somewhere we, where we want to stay permanent. You know, I want to be like this all the time. You know, whatever that is, whether it's the way, you know, we, we want to always be, 28 years old or we always want to have a clear mind or we always want to have a loving heart or we want to be successful and strong and healthy or whatever it is we can have different images or ideas about what we want to project in the world and then we want it to be like that all the time somehow we want to see ourselves as this permanent entity And so, one of the way, one of the problems with that, what happens with that is that because we are so caught up in a sense of me and I, we can also personalize the dukkha. We can, when when dukkha happens, when suffering happens, there's a way that we take responsibility for it and say, "Well, I must be doing something wrong. I must be bad." We blame ourselves. We get angry at ourselves we again try to manipulate the conditions and this in itself is very suffering is a lot of suffering if we're not blaming ourselves or falling into some kind of self-pity or anger then we'll blame others and make other people wrong and they should change so that I feel better and then we get into this whole kind of manipulation of our experience If we take the I out of it, the sense of what what I'm doing, and we see more the arising and passing of conditions, these are just momentary conditions coming and going, coming and going, then we are much more in tune with the way things are. If I'm taking responsibility for when things go wrong, then I'm also taking responsibility for when things go right when I'm feeling sukha, when I'm feeling happiness. And I say, well, I did it that time. Why can't I do it next time? You know, I got my meditation really clear, and I got my meditation really calm. Well, how did I do that? Well, let me think about it and figure it out, and maybe I could track it back, and I could get back there. But that's not what's happening. It's like, in some ways, it wasn't so much about what you did. It wasn't so much about... Your responsibility. Our responsibility is to stay present for what is. Our responsibility is to just pay attention. And in the paying attention itself, we're already beginning to cut through that which interferes with coming to a place of more peace in ourselves. Through the mindfulness and the presence itself, we're already applying the qualities and the skillful means that bring us closer to that which we are really wanting for ourselves. Our task is not to try to actually get somewhere else or change our experience in the moment, but simply to be present for what is. That's the skillful means. If there's something that we take responsibility for, if there's something that we are supposed to be doing, it's really simply to cultivate a quality of presence. And that means to see if we can be with what is, to open to what is just as it is, whether we like it, whether we don't like it, whether it's pleasurable, whether it's not pleasurable. That's the practice. It's really asking the question again and again, can I open to this? This is what's landed on my plate These are the conditions that have come together in this moment. Who knows why? Can I open to this with presence, with kindness, with compassion, with wisdom? Because this is what's here. And as much as I might want it to be different, that's not going to change anything at all. But what does begin to bring that transformation is when we work with our own mind as James gave a beautiful talk on working with the mind last night, working with the mind so we can come into a place of right relationship or a wise relationship with what is. And as we've been saying again and again, that it doesn't matter what kind of experience you're having. We're not concerned at all about your experiences. Isn't that interesting? That may not be what you expected, or what you imagined, we're not so interested. What we're really interested in is how you're working with that, how you're relating to that, what you're bringing, what you're if you're putting anything extra on top of the experience, which is that third kind of dukkha. You know, holding on, want, manipulating, trying to make things other than they are. This is a very subtle difference, and I'm hoping you're hearing the subtlety here, because we are actually influencing our experience in some way. It's not like we're not changing our experience, but it's how we're doing it that makes a difference. We're, we're, we're actually bringing, um, we're bringing a skillful, wise attention to what is in order for that experience to open in a way that is free of pain, that is free of suffering. We're not adding more on top of it. And that's really what we're looking at here, is what, what, what are we bringing to our experience that experience that's extra? What are we adding that we don't need to be adding? And that's what we can, we can start to pay attention to, that extra bit, because that's often what's causing the pain, the suffering. This is really a very courageous practice that we're engaged in. And it's a courageous practice because what we're really asking you to do is to be willing to suffer. That's hard. You know, in a way, we're sort of we're asking you to not push away the pain, the discomfort, the unsatisfactory aspect of life, but to actually open and embrace and welcome that into your life so that you can see it, you can know it, you can understand it. Otherwise, you're caught in the defensive mechanisms that keep it away, and that's what's going to happen. You're not going to open to that quality of life, that, that aspect of life. And when you're close to life, you're close to all of life. When you open to the pain, you open to the joy, because when we open, we open to it all. So we say that we open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That's becoming more whole. That's becoming more free. That's the true liberation. This is also called sometimes the bodhisattva path because bodhisattva is a word for courageous being a courageous being, a courageous being that has the willingness to suffer as a pathway to the heart of compassion. Because as we turn towards the discomfort, and we allow ourselves to actually touch it and open to it, the heart responds. The heart responds in compassion because the heart wants to alleviate that pain, wants to find a way for that being, whether it's myself or another person, to come out of that pain. That's the bodhisattva. To have the heart awaken so that all beings can be free of their pain and their suffering. The bodhisattva says, if this is the way it is, I will not turn away. It's a very strong, emphatic statement. I will not turn away. I will not turn away from life because life is the as the conditions that are arising in the moment, is really the highest reality. What's present here and now is the highest reality. What's past in the last moment is gone. What has, the next moment, the future moment, hasn't come yet. What's here right now is the highest reality. So this is the, really the instruction, the direction in the first noble truth to fully understand Dukkha, to fully understand it. And that the only way we can fully understand it is to really look at it, to open to it, to be with it. Otherwise, we keep it away. We keep it at arm's distance. And it's not an understanding that comes about through asking the question, why, as James mentioned, or analyzing or trying to figure it out. It's the opening that says suffering is like this, as one of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, it's a wonderful phrase that we were given, suffering is like this, discomfort is like this, impatience is like this, anger is like this, fear is like this. We just come into it, we feel it, we, uh, we see what's actually happening in the body, what is, what's happening in the mind, what, what's happening in present experience as we come more fully into contact with what is. We use all of ourselves to meet the experience just as it is. As one of my teachers tells me, feel from the inside. What's it like from the inside? Because the tendency so often is to just want to slip right over it. It's like, okay, there it is. Just slip the attention right off. Oh, okay, pain, pain, slip right off. We don't really want to feel it. But as we deepen, we can start to come more into the, more of the dimensions of our experience, deeper and deeper, more expanded, more open, so much to be discovered for us. So it's these insights, insights into the nature of things, insight into impermanence, or the insight into the unreliability or the unsatisfactory nature, or the insight into uh, what's called anatta, that nothing is... Uh, separate from us, truly separate from us, but everything is of one piece, everything is interconnected, nothing is self-existent. So we can have these insights into the way things are, and this helps helps to loosen the structure of who we take ourselves to be. So that more and more we take things less personally. We don't feel so such a heavy responsibility that we have to figure everything out ourselves. But we can begin to let go and to open and surrender to that which is much much bigger, much much larger than we can possibly ever understand. And sometimes we call that the great mystery. The way things are happening, coming and going, changing, shifting all the time, moment to moment. What's making that happen? What's fueling that? What's the source of that? It's a great mystery. We don't know. So our practice, again and again, is one of kindness. A kind attention towards everything that we see within our mind, our body, our emotions, our experience, and to know that we will act out of our conditioned way of being. We will fall into our old destructive habits of mind and being. But can we pay attention to that without judgment, without adding more on top of what's happening? And then if we are judging, not to judge the judgment, you know, not to get more involved in creating more and more and more, just layering more and more on top of our experience. This is really what transforms our relationship to ourselves and to our life. And I'd like to end with this poem from a a shaman woman, Eskimo, from the 20th century a poem that I really love very much, that when I hear it really touches me right into this great mystery. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away, trembling with joy. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. Let's sit for a minute.